Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show, broadcasting on CITR Radio 101.9 FM from the unceded Musqueam Territory at the University of Beautiful British Columbia. I'm Michael McCall. I'm Steve Boosted Panther. <laughs> and I'm Zachary Adam Who's about to be boosted? I'm feeling left out here because you two guys are getting your booster shots this week and I have to wait till next Wednesday to get mine. I'm on it right now, so I don't know what I'm going to be talking about today. Oh, he's high as a kite. If you could only see these visuals, he's stripped naked. (laughs) I don't think it's anything to do with the booster, but it's just, (laughs) it has got quite balmy here. Oh, actually, talking of the weather, how's things at Abbotsford, actually, Zach? Because I was watching the news tonight and it's not good there again with the flooding. Yeah, my, my... My farmer friends are praying that that Nutsack River does not uh, overflow again. Well, it's uh. stopped. Uh, here it's stopped, so I don't know what is there. It's oh, it's raining on, on my way home tonight. So, yeah. See, when your Nutsack like, just spills over. Well, no, seriously, just someone, I know I'm not an expert on any of this, so I'm not, this is what I heard, is that basically the Nutsack River, which is across the border in the States, mm. it needs to be dredged, right? Yeah. Because no, they're, they're it and stuff, and because there's been like sort of um, uh, environmentally friendly uh, governors or whatever in Washington State, they've said they don't want to do it because one of the perspectives is that messes up the the salmon, uh, the, the t- salmon spawn. But then I've it also heard pot- that it uh, potentially it, messes it up. It's not a conf- confirmation. Yeah, I, I've heard you can do it at a certain time of year when it won't yeah. impact. Actually, will create new spots from the spawn and whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Something needs to be done about that river, I think. Oh, yeah. And that's that's get, the thing. Like, you got to, like, basically, instead of, like, uh, um, boxers, you got to put briefs on that nutsack <laughs> and, and be able to keep it contained. Yeah, you want, you want to keep it nice and tight. Yeah. But this is our second show of 2022, and it's going to be our last kind of year-in-review shows. We're going to be focusing... In the second, third, and fourth parts of this show, on the the year in Canadian women's soccer and some stuff that's going to be coming out in, in women's soccer as well, yeah, we're also going to last. yes, we're also going to be kicking things off with a, a look at our Whitecaps news of the week. But regular listeners will know that all of 2021, we started our shows 
by opening the gift that kept on giving until it gave no more, which was Steve's 2020 Christmas presents to, to Zach and myself, which was a box of upper deck MLS trading card packs. So we haven't got another box to open this year. Don't fret. But we do have an AW upper deck. No, we don't. Although I did say to Steve that is a possibility. So what I've what I thought we might do, maybe not every episode, but for a lot of them, we're going to start off the shows with a, a chat about football TV and football movies. I'm bringing back an old section and revamping it, and we'll still do what we did in the section before, which was speak to some of the the White Cats players and other players about their favourite TV shows and stuff. But it's time for the first time in 2022 for TV OD. TVOD, TVOD, TVOD. So what exactly is this new TVOD going to be about? Well, I want to to kind of chat about some of the, the football-themed TV that is on some of the streaming services or over in the UK where there's obviously going to be a lot of shows and I know folk have got access via various means to, to watch some of that. Maybe some historic TV things, some films as well. Might task you guys with, with watching a particular show or something for us to, to chat about in the weeks to come. But because this episode is all about women's soccer, or primarily about women's soccer, I thought I would kick off this section with a little chat about a four-part biopic that uh, I watched last, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, that was shown on ITV in the UK. Now, I'm not sure what streaming services it's going to be on. It might be on BritBox, um, it might appear on Amazon Prime, something like that down the line. But people that are interested in it just now can find it on ITV Hub if you've got a VPN and you, you regularly watch UK TV. It was a four-part series called Anne. And it was a dramatisation of the the life of Anne Williams, who was a campaigner for the, the Hillsborough disaster after her 15-year-old son went to the game and never came home. And it's a it's a very harrowing watch at times. And I've got to say, every episode, I had tears in my eyes at various points. The first episode in particular, if you do watch it, it it's a tough watch. I was in, in floods of tears. But I just wanted to chat a little bit about that and just about the, the Hillsborough disaster and stuff as well because it, it was very interesting watching the documentary I say the documentary, there was a documentary after the 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 four-part dramatisation of it, which was focusing on the life and times of, of Anne Williams as well. But the actual four-part show, Anne. So it, it starts with her son getting a ticket to go to Hillsborough and she wasn't going to let him go to that game because it was a semi-final and it was an away match and he was only 15. But the morning of it, she, she caved in to his moans and said, yep, you can go. And sadly, he, he never came home. Now, I don't think we've really talked about the Hillsborough disaster on the show very much. But, I mean, what what was your... Like, how old were you guys when that happened? And what 
What was your kind of recollections of, of how it was covered over here? It was 89, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was not, I was 10 years old and I was not into football until 93, 94. So it was not on my radar, not on my scale at all. Um, in the, you know, since then, uh, I have, uh, I'm friends with someone who was there. And, oh, um, wow. Really? Yeah. I think I've told you before. I don't think you've met him, but yeah. Um, so I've heard his stories about, you know, uh, about it. Uh, I usually, usually not, maybe not every year, but usually around the anniversary, I'll send him a message. Um, just let him know I'm thinking about him and praying for him. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, it was tragic and really, uh, I mean, it's tragic for like holistically, but just thinking about my friend, like it, it really shaped, shaped him. Yeah, that that was one of the things which was mentioned a, a lot in the show. It, it, it's ninety seven people that have died now because another person died last year that had been kind of in hospital since the disaster, and eventually he passed away. But also, it's the it's the emotional and mental toll that is taken on a lot of the people that were there, and they still have to kind of carry that. And that that was a tough thing as well. That that was focused a lot on, on the dramatization. How, how old were you, Steve, when, when I was, that took place? Uh, uh, not too far off from exactly about 13, I believe 12, 13 or whatever. And uh, essentially, um, yeah, I, I, I recalled stuff being on the news uh, around that time. I think it was, I think I saw it on American news, actually, if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was happened to be on a broadcast there. And um, so saw it on that. And then I do uh, like, uh, I haven't watched anything on it. Well, I watched a, a, a few clips here and there, but the main thing I've watched is the 30 for 30 documentary that mm. ESPN put out maybe like three, four years ago. It, it dealt with a lot of the um, what happened and, and everything. It, it, they dealt in a, a little bit of the personal stuff, but not too much if I, from my recollection. Um, obviously, they, they always put that human aspect in there, but they did a lot of it about the investigation of afterwards too and the cover-up and stuff like that. So... It was a, a lot on that stuff. That, so that's what I basically see. Yeah, I, I was at uh, an East Fife game uh, that afternoon and we we got word had come through people that had brought their radios to the game because that's what you, what you did back then to kind of keep track of other games and stuff and it slowly started to come through and then you, you heard just how bad it was looking but even that didn't do anything until you got home. And it was even really that night and the next day that the full ramifications of, of what had happened had played out. Now, I mean, there's been a, a couple of really good documentaries on it and a dramatisation called Hillsborough in the past as well. So this show that I'm talking about, Anne, it's a four-part show and it's focusing on Anne Williams' campaign to get justice for her son and the others that died there. And it touches on the cover-up and her her constantly pushing to get new evidence and evidence allowed that was kind of forgotten about and statements that was changed. And it, it's it's heartbreaking to watch what she went through. And they still haven't really got justice because although in 2016 there was court hearings that, that said, yep, the, the police were... The, ultimately the ones responsible and not the fans for opening the gate. No one was ever prosecuted. The main guy that was charged, his case fell through and then was retrialed and he was found not guilty in 2019. 
And then the other people that were on trial, they got thrown out in 2021. So there's never fully been justice. And sadly, Anne passed away even before she she got to that stage, which isn't a spoiler, I guess, for, for people that know her story for, for watching the show. But although it's harrowing to, to watch at times, I think it's very important for football fans to, to watch that and for maybe younger ones that don't have a full understanding of, of what happened Definitely try and check it out. It's on ITV Player, ITV Hub it's called. So if you've got a VPN, you can watch it on that. There's always other ways that you you can watch things as well, as I'm sure various people know. And I'm sure it will appear on a number of streaming services as well. So a little bit of a, a sad way to start off the show, but it was just something I watched that had a very profound impact on me. I watched an episode a night and I just think it's something that people should watch. So that is the start to our TVOD for 2022. TVOD. I don't need a TV screen. I just stick the aerial into my skin and let the signal run through my veins. TVOD. So let's get into the, the football chat now, the meat and potatoes of the show, unless you're on Vegan Yuri, in which case it's the tofu and, and potatoes, uh, I guess. But we're going to kick off this part with the Whitecaps news of the week, because the Whitecaps kind of have five new players. Well, they, they picked five players in Tuesday's MLS Super Draft anyway. So we're going to have a little look over that in this part and here. Some, some audio from their first draft pick and from Vanny Sartini and Axel Schuster as well. So in the first round, the Whitecaps used their 16th overall selection on 22-year-old St. Louis University forward Simon Betcher. The, the second round saw 21-year-old Ecuadorian midfielder Luis Felipe Fernandez Salvador from Clemson University, he was taken 44th overall, and 23-year-old American midfielder Giovanni Aguilar from California State University, Northridge, he was taken 49th overall. And in the third round, so the Whitecaps select 21-year-old French forward Theo Colomb from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. 72nd overall, and 23-year-old Brazilian midfielder Vitor Diaz from Marshall University, who was taken 86th overall. So we'll chat about the players in a bit, but no defenders picked this year. Two forwards, three midfielders, two or three internationals in there because there's a little bit of confusion uh, over the Ecuadorian guy because... He may also be classed as a domestic. We've yeah. had two different things issued yeah, with Zach regards was, to that. Zach saw a release that said Luis Felipe was international, but on their website, the Whitecaps have not listed as domestic and his citizenship as Ecuadorian and American. Right, we'll, so we'll go with that then. Obviously, we'll have to clear that up yeah. if that is the case or not. So it's probably just the Frenchman and the Brazilian then that, that's going to hold international spots, but we'll get into all of that. Now, obviously, some of these guys may disappear without trace, as we've seen in the past. What I decided not to do this year, like in previous years, I've kind of taken a deep dive into all our draft picks, and I've thought it's not even any point. Someone actually sent me a, a, 
a DM yesterday going, can't wait to, to read about your deep dive into these guys and get all excited about a player only to never hear from him ever again. <laughs> so I've thought I'm not even wasting my energy on that. We'll just see how they pan out. But I, I think with the, the MLS Next Pro team now incoming, it does give the club some roster depth and it, it, it gives these guys a, a chance to kind of show what they've got without being earning an MLS contract so they can now play in this under-23 team and, and yeah. show what they've got. And it gives us some depth, especially in the midfield, and who knows how how they'll they'll thrive once in a, a pro environment, Steve. Yeah, and maybe they pick the midfielders because they, they, they need to fill out those rosters because they know their strengths uh, in the academy are in those other positions. Maybe they have more defenders in the academy that they want to play, so they're Midfield depth, and that's why they need to fill that in. Um, from they, what they, I can they, they do feel strong, like defensively, wingers and up front, and from what I've seen from the under twenty team, twenty threes and nineteen. So yeah, yeah, I think it maybe does make a bit of sense. So, um, uh, I, like I don't know too much about this. I know Simon Becker or Beecher or whatever how you pronounce the name. Um, he was uh, rated highly by a lot of draft experts and the people that seen college uh, soccer. Um, so he was like rated like some by some people in the top ten. Um, so uh, it was it, the, on the on the MLS site. It's it's rated as a very solid value. Um, they, they they really didn't have much to say about the two uh, second and third players, uh, but uh, they really were in, uh, glowing about Victor Diaz, uh, feeling like he's one of the uh, best attacking players in college soccer last year. So so it's it's interesting to see how. People actually give the Whitecaps a pretty high grade based on the late picks. Yeah, so it was a- I think because they've gone for a couple of internationals as well, maybe other teams did shy away from them. But just yeah. what, what's your initial general thoughts on it, Zach? Yeah, I mean, the the, the things that stand out for me is uh, that they took so many internationals, whether it's two or three, it still feels kind of high. And two, this like it would make sense what you guys are saying in terms of filling out a roster for this next pro MLS next pro thing uh, or squad. Sorry. Um, but it just feels weird. Like I mean, Steve, you say this all the time at this time of year. And I think we all have said it at one point or another that, I mean, the MLS draft is usually bears more fruit in like, you know, center back, full back, mm-hmm. maybe like winger. That's where that a lot of the year. early picks this year went as well from other teams. Exactly. Yeah, that- and that might be the thing that the the early teams took all those players and, and that allowed an attacking player like Beecher to show up at the end of it. And maybe yeah. they just got it for depth. Maybe maybe he himself will only play in the that next team and won't be in the main roster as well. Maybe yeah. they're not looking. Maybe none of these players will be. The thing is, last year we all had uh, um, their top pick. Uh, being the number oh, one Ed, guy. Yeah, I mean, Edbo. Uh, and we still haven't really seen him with injuries being put out on loan. So, I mean, you have to feel him and Beecher are going to be fighting for a, a roster spot. Edbo obviously has it just now. But, I mean, they've both got to show in this MLS2 team and just show what they can get. Let, let's just play a little bit of audio just now. I asked Vanny Sartini after the draft on why he went for... Simon Beecher as, as their first pick and just what the general plans are for the draft picks. Here's what he had to say about that. Yeah. 
so just spoken to Simon there, looking at his highlight reel and looking at what he's done at, at college level, at USL2 level. He certainly seems to be a, a striker that knows the way to the back of the net. What was it about him that particularly interested you and made you want to make him the your first pick today? Uh, well, first of all, I want to ask, answer this. The fact is that uh, the the choice that we make, it's a team choice. It's just on us. We, have, we did a lot of uh, work with our scouting team and uh, with all the other coaches. So we... We had a, a pretty extensive background on what we could with, with all the players. And about Simon was uh, the fact that he's a striker that is very intense. He attacked the space. Of course, he scored a lot of goals, but uh, it's not just that. It's the fact that uh, uh, we we saw something that we like in uh, as a striker. He's very good at pressing. He's, he does the simple thing. So... Actually, I actually look forward to see if this thing that we saw at the college level uh, is going to be able to translate also the professional level. You used all your picks today as well, which hasn't necessarily been the case uh, in some of the, the more recent ones with the club. With this new MLS2 team on the horizon, are a number of these guys with a, a look to bring them in and have a look at them for the second team? Or are you just wanting to get the rights and maybe have them go elsewhere right now? Or is it too early to say? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, we pick the guys because we think that uh, they can be uh, good players, maybe good players in perspective. And, uh, you know, having them uh, uh, in, uh, in pre-season and uh, watching them can be uh, the possibility to... To understand if they're going to be part of our first team, part of our second team, maybe different designs. So the, the fact that uh, uh, we made all the picks is that uh, we have this opportunity. And so we wanted to lock as many good players that uh, we, we, we could have uh, possibly locked. So Vanni Sartini there saying as far as he's concerned, he wants to look at them all in pre-season training, see what they've got, who knows? who might make the MLS roster, who might make the MLS next pro roster, who might not even make it altogether. But they're all, all going to be coming up, taking part in pre-season training. Now, Beecher looks a bright prospect, uh, as Steve talked about there. We've been there before, though, with various draft picks over the years. But looking at Beecher's stats, he scored 21 goals and got 13 assists in his three seasons at St. Louis from 2019 to 21. Prior to playing there, he had a freshman season at Holy Cross University and he led the team there with seven goals and three assists. Last year was his final collegiate season and he finished tied for first in NCAA goal contributions with 14 goals and 10 assists. He was named to the first team in All-American by the, the United Soccer Coaches. He was the Offensive Player of the Year in the Atlantic 10 Conference. Top Drawer Soccer had him in the first team best 11. And he was also a semi-finalist in the, the Herman Trophy. So he's a guy that throughout his, his career at youth level, college level, USL2 level... He, he knows how to get goals. He's scored a lot of goals. During the most recent season, he had a goal or an assist in 11 straight games 
and he had a five-game winning goals to help St. Louis win the, the conference championship. At USL 2 level, he scored seven goals and ten appearances for Reading United in 2019. The 2020 season was obviously not played with COVID. In 2021, he captained Ocean City Nor'easters. He was named to the Eastern Conference Team of the Year and he scored 12 goals in 14 matches. Six of them were game-winning goals and in amongst that was a 10-minute hat-trick that he got by coming off the bench. So he's shown he can do it at these levels. Obviously, it's a step up, but... It, it it looks exciting. We've got a guy that knows how to score. Yeah, and I think that, and he, I I personally think that he will see a lot of time at that reserve level um, yeah. initially, and and he'll probably be the main guy and and be somebody that they could call up if they need him at the pro level. Uh, but they he a striker in their first couple of years as pro, whether it's you know at the MLS level at the USL level. They need a couple of years to get used to uh, uh, playing up against grown men, defenders, uh, basically. And that takes some time to figure out where they could find their open spots, how they need to work on their finishing. Finishing is something that I can't remember. I think it was Martin Rennie uh, mentioned. I asked him, like, what's, uh, what, you know, what are three things that Caleb Clark, I remember asking him what three things that Caleb Clark need to work on as a young striker. He goes, finishing, finishing, finishing. So he wouldn't even go to anything else. It was all three of them were finishing. He just needs to start keep finish. So that's something that young strikers need to do. And once they get that going, then they'll definitely. We we talked about it before in previous shows that there have been a number of strikers that come from the college ranks where in their first year or two they don't do well, and then they all of a sudden they blossom once they get used to the league and everything. So hopefully it's the works with him as well. Brian White, same thing, kind of yeah, in that kind of way. And like Brian White got a lot of experience by playing USL for Red Bulls 2, Red Bulls 3. And the thing is, Zach, with Beecher, he's a guy that I quite like this, and I know a lot of teams because this is what they look for in North American college soccer. They want their athletic and quick players. That isn't Beecher. He's actually, it says about him, he's not the most athletic striker. And I actually quite like that because I think we've taken a punt on a lot of athletic guys in the past, speedy little guys, and it just hasn't quite worked out. He is a guy that looks like he's going to thrive in a two-striker system, so playing off someone. So, I mean, if he can get some chemistry going, him and Egbo say in the the MLS 2 Reserve League, that could be both good for both of those guys, because then they could go in and, and partner White, Cavallini, whatever, it also raises a question, though, what's maybe going to happen with Theo Bear? Now, obviously, he's coming back to, as far as we know, to, to Whitecaps pre-season training. But after the experience that he's had over in Scandinavia last year, you have to imagine he's going to be quite keen to get back over there. Yeah, I would think Theo would want to kind of continue to expand his horizons in Europe as he's, I think, had some really positive experience already in Norway. Having said that, I'm su- a little surprised at them taking such attacking players. It does seem like as you read about these guys that and 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 the the Betcher, am I saying right? Belt Betcher. I, I'm going with Betcher. So Betcher, you can you know, Betcher bottom dollar. Exactly. When you read about Betcher and you read about these these other attacking players, they all feel like there's a bit of this uh, you know diamond in the rough like potential potentiality to them. 
And yeah, which we have me... seen before with other guys. Exactly. I've been very high in a, a few of our draft picks over the years, and where Ex- are they now? Exactly. But it, it now that they have this team close by again. Yeah, it's yeah. it's probably not a bad idea to bring in in some of these kind of guys like this. Um, I think that it'll, it'll be it'll be interesting to see it'll be interesting how how they perform in this essentially this reserve league. Yeah. Um, the thing is with draft picks in in m- m- most leagues, uh, it's considered a lottery, a lottery. Oh pick. yeah, so picking a pool. Uh, so a bit. and and it, considering soccer, the majority of top talent is actually in uh, like through the academies and stuff like that. And uh, 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 MLS super draft, that's more. The odds are even bigger than a normal lottery pick. So yeah, so I, I like you. You don't expect anybody to make it, but if somebody does, I think it's a bonus. Let's hear a little bit from the man himself now. The, the Whitecaps' first-round draft pick, Simon Betcher, spoke to media after the draft on Tuesday. I got to ask him a few questions. Here's what he had to say. When did you first get uh, an indication that Vancouver might be interested in you? How did... Did they talk to you in the build-up to this? How did those talks go? Yeah, um, I think, you know, a lot of teams, it happens differently for. Some teams will interview you a lot, and, you know, obviously they're scouting a lot of players. Um, I didn't really hear much from Vancouver until um, I got my name called, so it was a big surprise to me. Um, And I think a lot of teams sometimes like to keep their cards close to their chest if they – have a pick that they really like. They don't really want to show a ton of maybe interest in case someone um, jumps up in front of them. So a bit of a surprise, but a pleasant one at that for sure. Looking at your your goal scoring record at college level at USL two as well, you're certainly a, a player that seems to know the, the the back of the net. What for folk that haven't seen you play? What can fans expect from you as a player? What do you hope to bring to this team? Hopefully, of course, as a forward, I hope to bring goals. Um, and if not off of me, off of my teammates, whether it be creating or scoring them. And then, just an honest, hardworking player. I, um, you know, I think I pride myself in, you know, liking to do the dirty work, liking to work hard. I don't see myself as a bit of a luxury forward. I, you know, kind of like to do it all. So, yeah, I think scoring and working hard and, you know, wanting to win and hopefully bringing that to the club. Like looking at how, how you've played the last couple of seasons in USL 2 with Ocean, Ocean City, how did you find the transition from college to that level and what do you feel you need to do now to take the the step at this next level because it's obviously going to be much different competition um i think the transition from usl2 to college is you know i think they're very similar a lot of college guys use that um as i did to get ready for the college season i think it really aided in my college season to come in match fit and hit the ground running so you know i I felt those were pretty comparable levels and then making the jump to mls is obviously you know it's much different than college soccer so again you know i think 
the guys in the locker room will help me. Um, you know, guys who have been through it a lot, just kind of maybe show me the ropes. And then, you know, the one thing like I mentioned before is just working hard and um, just being gritty and uh, just showing the team I'm willing to work. I'm willing to, you know, sacrifice to be a part of the team. Um, and then hopefully my game continues to translate into the speed of play and I can help make a difference. And just your own personal journey to this level. I know you came through Oakwood in USSDA and you're at Holy Cross before St. Louis as well. When did you know that you had what it took to, to be a professional footballer? And when did that kind of fire get lit under you that you wanted this to, to be your career? Yeah. Um, after... You know, it's obviously a lot of players' dreams to be a professional. So I've obviously it's been one since I've been a, a small kid since I started playing and I fell in love with the game. But after my first season at Oakwood, I really had a, a, a my first season at Holy Cross. I'm sorry. You know, I had a really good year there, um, and you know, I had conversations and just just hard ones, honestly. Um, I needed to go somewhere to challenge myself if I wanted to be a serious professional player and have that opportunity. So I felt that, you know, uh, moving out of there and into a place like St. Louis, that would help me grow, that would challenge me to, you know, become the best player I can and continue to improve my game. I think, you know, that was the point where I was like, I can really do this if I obviously continue to put the work in and get somewhere that's going to continue to help me grow and challenge me to be a better player. And hopefully, Moving from St. Louis to Vancouver, it does the same thing. I think, you know, Vancouver will be a great spot for me to continue to grow and um, grow into the league as, as a player. So Simon Betcher there. Interesting, his girlfriend's from Toronto, so he's been up in Canada. He's used to shoveling snow, he said, so just as well with the winters that we're starting to have by the looks of it. So at least it's a Canadian connection. He knows about Canada and his girlfriend at least is going to settle. So, so that is a good thing. Let's just quickly look over the others. We won't spend too much time on these guys because who really knows? So Luis Felipe Fernandez Salvador. Now he sounds like he would be a good footballer. I mean, that's a name that just you... There's only one Luis Felipe Fernandez Salvador. One Luis Felipe <laughs> Fernandez Salvador. I'm assuming he'll probably go by Luis Felipe, right? He won't. They'll they'll cut out the last part of his name. I think usually that's what occurs. Well, right? we know Felipe's work out here. Yeah. So I mean, when would that not work out? But he sounds like he he could be another good prospect. He played a key role in helping Clemson University win the 2021 NCAA National Championships. He earned a spot on the College Cup All-Tournament team as well. He's a midfielder. He scored eight goals, got five assists and 23 appearances and 16 starts in his senior season. Overall finished his collegiate career with 11 goals, 14 assists and 69 appearances, 51 of those starts. He originally hails from Ecuador, but he did play, as, as you mentioned, Steve, his, his youth soccer with Shattuck St. Mary's, who's a team that, whenever it was the USSDA playoffs, we always saw them. Whitecaps have played them a few times. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really top independent uh, academy there. The, one of the other guys, Aguilar, central midfielder, but he has signed with Sacramento Republic. So the Caps are holding his MLS rights. 
So already he's away developing at USL level. If he turns but, out to be a great player, they've got his rights. Yeah, and good thing is is that they uh, they knew this time that he had signed with somebody, yes. unlike a, a previous time. <laughs> yes, no surprises there. Now, the other two guys who were taken in the third round, now third round picks, you can usually just either just forget about and a lot of teams pass. These two guys are very intriguing. And that's why it's good that we've got this MLS 2 team now to have a look at them. So Colom, he's 21. He played two seasons of soccer at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. 2021 season, he led all of the NCAA during the regular season with 15 goals and he averaged one goal a game. He also got five assists. Now, that's pretty impressive at college level. He's a a native of Clermont in France, and he also played three seasons on the second team of French club Clermont Foot 63. Don't think there's any relation to Club Foot Montreal, but I I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I had to. Um, But he made 30 appearances with them and scored nine goals. So that's a a good level in in France as well. And then there's this Brazilian guy, Diaz. 23, so a bit older. But he led Marshall University to their first NCAA National Championship title in 2020. He tallied six goals and seven assists and 14 starts and 17 appearances that season. Got a slew of accolades as well. He was a semi-finalist for the Mac Herman Trophy. Overall, 14 goals, 15 assists and, and 54 appearances f- for Marshall. So these are guys I'm interested to see what they can do, as I said. I mean, who knows? It's a bit of a pig in a poke. We'll see how it turns yeah. out. The, the thing is, is that the one thing I want to say about the people might not know, I know that's a good accolade to being a semi-finalist for the Herman Trophy, but that's kind of like being a nominated for coach of the year in MLS. <laughs> if you're coaching, you get nominated. <laughs> but it's it's a very good thing because the other accolades are definitely big. Like the U.S. You know, Conference USA Player of the Year and Offensive MVP. The second two players are highly attacking players. Yeah. And so that should be exciting at that uh, reserve level. And we've got guys that's won national championships as well. And I, just yeah. going back to Beecher as well, that St. Louis program... I think five or six guys selected in the first round from that one team, which the new MLS St. Louis team must be like, why are we not in this year? There's all this local talent that's coming out. And the general feeling is they're now going to use St. Louis University to channel their academy guys into that because Mm. it's such a good programme. And just looking around the facilities, it's a proper grass pitch. It looks a great atmosphere. They pack the fans in and yeah. It it might not... It might not translate into anything, but it is encouraging to see, uh, I guess, at least two of these players come in as, you know, having a, having won something, not the individual accolades, the actual has been a part of a championship winning yeah. team. Like, hopefully that mentality is transferred to whether it's the second team or the first team. Because um, I think, oh, yeah, hopefully that'll be an intangible that, that we see bear some fruit. And in Beecher, oh. they've got another guy that's captained a team, which is another mm. thing that we seem to look for a who, lot. Who, who's that uh, Whitecaps um, um, a striker? Tom, uh, the, the big guy, Tom Hurt. Tommy oh, Heineman? No, no. Heineman. Oh, I, 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 well, maybe the big the guy. Wolfman? Like, yeah, Wolfman, that's it. Yeah, it's Tommy um, uh, I think, wasn't he from the St. Louis area too? Maybe not, not the sure. university, but I thought he was the from the... I'll it's a it very storied program. 
Yeah, it's like they they've won a lot of championships. Over either the either years. he was from St. Louis or he's from that university. I can't mm. remember what it was. But these guys, as we've talked about, primarily, I would fully expect to see them get a look on this MLS two MLS Next Pro. I'm trying to get used to saying it. I'd rather just call it MLS two, but I'm trying to go with the proper name. It is a bit of a mouthful, but. It's exciting because that is one of the, the two new Whitecaps teams that we've got to watch in, in 2022. So I asked Axel on Tuesday just what's happening with that. Does he know when the schedule is going to be coming out? What the games are going to look like? Is it more going to be tailored for fans going to watch, etc, etc? Here's what you had to say about that. My other question was just about the MLS Next Pro side. Can you share any more information on it as to maybe when the season may be starting, where you're looking to play, how closely integrated with the, the first team you look for this team to be? The only thing I can answer right now is the third part of it. Um, I think everything else will come soon, but uh, we are uh, also there coordinating with uh, with MLS and uh, the, the new office um, that is coordinating the MLS Next Pro, um, but we see both teams very closely connected, and uh, we want to 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 have uh, uh, this 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 team very close by to the first team because uh, we we want and we always said we want to see that team as the top of the pyramid of our development platform, and we want to be a club that gives chances to players and has a pathway for players to the first team. So for that reason, if you are have made the last step to this to this last uh, team of our academy, then there then then you should also see already the first team, although you are not there, and it has to have a close connection. That uh, the transition is very easy. Uh, for example, if uh, if Vanny has a training and uh, he is missing a, a player on a certain position or uh, with international duties also come uh, coming again coming up soon. Uh, we, we need a few more bodies that uh, those players are ready and, and know exactly what the demands are in this first team. Just to clarify though, is this a team that you would be expecting supporters to be able to come and watch the games or is it more games that's going to be like midweek and during the day and stuff like that? No, no, also the, also the schedule uh, will be as much connected to the first team schedule as possible, of course. Uh, Everything is challenging. If you're the, the the last post in this league in in North uh, West, so uh, there's a lot of travel coming up also for that team, and uh, they are not only playing MLS teams. Uh, that, so it is not it's not possible that they always play this game schedule like us. But um, but as as much as possible, also the schedule should be aligned and and connected to our schedule. So there's also the idea if uh, if we play on the road, another team that also has an MLS Next Pro team, that we travel together. Um, and what I think it's a it's a it's a very good idea and a very good possibility for those players to to do a first step into the professional team and to see how things work uh, without being uh, really exactly there, um, but to be more ready um, to to play in MLS at some point. Axel Schuster there, just chatting a little bit about the MLS2 team. So a, a lot still up in the air about where they're going to be playing and stuff like that. But it, it does make sense, guys, if they do have 
it might might not necessarily be double headers, but if they're on a trip to Portland, the 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 first team plays one day, the other team plays the next day, so that maybe some of the guys that didn't get a look can do this. You know, a proper MLS two team. Why have we never thought of that before? <laughs> but we'll see how that plays out. I am genuinely looking forward though to the MLS Knicks Pro. I also the under nineteens in League One BC. Just the more football to watch. Just put it straight in my veins. But that is it for our Whitecaps chat for this episode. For the rest of the show, we're going to be turning our attention to women's soccer. And we're going to be looking at the national team, club football in Canada from a women's perspective. And we're going to be chatting to Emma Humphreys as well, Director of Women's Football at the Whitecaps. And we will be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Vanni Sartini, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's our Artist of the Month for January here at AFTN, from Edinburgh, Scotland, the seminal punk band, The Exploited, with their third single, which was released in 1981, and that was Dead Cities. Which, if you're like my wife, when I was playing this earlier, putting this together, she's like, what is he singing? I was like, Dead Cities. So, as I did warn on last week's show, when it's our Artist of the Month, maybe you might want to turn the volume down just a, a, a little bit. But anyway, it is time now for our final year in review segment on the show. We've looked at the Whitecaps. We've looked at the CPL. We've looked at the men's national team. Now it's going to be a Canadian women's football year in review and we're kicking it off in this part with the only way that we can kick it off. The gold medal win in Tokyo. A moment that will long live in the memories of all football fans in Canada. It feels so long ago already, Steve, but just when you think back to the summer, that gold medal win, it still brings out goosebumps on me. I mean, how do you look back at that now all these months later? Um, it's odd, too, because if you look back on it, um, we weren't even sure if the Olympics were still going to happen at that time. There was yeah. like, Although the, the organizer said it's definitely going to happen, you still never knew, right? And and the fact that this this tournament should have been a year before, 
like how much does that affect everything as well? So um, a lot of a lot of weird go- things going into this tournament, and and it was it was it was like we we talked about in the men's you know thing how how they built up through the year. This was a building through the years mm-hmm. of getting to this point. Like this has been multiple years. Like you go all the way back to the World Cup in Germany and how low they were at that point, and and to and that long trek back to the top. Obviously, so many players that were that were on this team and and like on that team and on the teams that following weren't on this particular team. And so there's a lot of players that were involved in building this to the uh, to the gold medal. What about yourself, Zach? Looking back on it now, six, seven months ago, it, it is still, when you think back to that penalty shootout, just such a magical moment in women's football. Yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't by no means anticlimactic, but for me, it's essentially the the beating the Americans in the semifinals was, you know, I almost felt like, you almost felt like going into the final one, you felt like, okay, they have achieved their objective because they've changed the color of the medal. But I also almost felt like not, it was a given, but I almost, you just felt like they're, they're going to win this. Like you, they beaten the Americans in this yep. semifinal. You know? Yeah. They could have got complacent. They, yeah. They, but they could they, also have been like a hangover from that as well, because I mean, I don't think these women were off that mindset. No. But sometimes it's easy to slip into, well, we've done the hard job now. No, to me, to me, it was like they like exercised the ghosts of 2012 in in Great Britain, where they should have beaten the states in the semifinals, and and that I like it just felt to me like yeah, they were going to go on and they were going to go on and win it. Um, I think how. I so I mean it's the greatest thing to happen in Canadian football. Yeah, period. no, I said women's soccer, but really in Canadian yeah, football, it's the greatest it's thing like in Canadian football yeah. that ever happened, which is which is amazing. Until um, we left the World Cup in twenty twenty six. That's true, um, but uh, it is a little bit awkward because not awkward, but when you were, I mean, you can't help but analyze and reflect on how they. Were. How they won it right like it wasn't it, i mean the the football the football itself was flowing but like the attack in the especially in the knockout stages the attack wasn't like clicking clicking right like it, they it, did it, it was not. a defense first win if we're being honest and like bev priestman talked about that afterwards that she, knew first, she but, had to be solid defensively to do this but they had good attacking as well. They just, it was like their finishing yes. was just off or they didn't quite create enough chances to, you know, because um, so it, it was weird, right? Like they didn't score a goal from open play in the knockout stages, right? And yet yeah. they, still, they still won. You know, they scored a couple of penalties and then they scored and then they won two penalty shootouts. As you but, always point out to me, those act penalties still totally. count as goals. And, 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 and having said that, for me, none of that takes away from the fact that it is the greatest thing that's ever happened in in Canadian football. It, it felt like a very Italian run to me, like yes. a typical Italian run that uh, the the men have seen in the past, where they it's just like uh, you do what you have to do to get over the line, uh, even if it means going to penalties and winning it there. That's more like that's that's not quite this 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 era of Italian football. No, no, no I'm talking about the yeah, I'm old, talking about the old school. Old old school. I know yeah. exactly what what Steve's meaning with that. I mean, like, I, I, I should touch. 
As you touched on there, Zach, the whole thing with this was to change the colour of the medal. That's what Bev Priestman preached going into this. They'd had bronzes. They wanted at least silver. They, they got even better. If we look at the group stage, Canada were drawn in Group E beside Team GB, Chile and the hosts, Japan. So in the group stage, they only got one win and two draws. They opened with a good one-all draw with the host, Japan. Sinclair opened the scoring six minutes in, but Japan tied it up with six minutes to go. And you wondered how important that was going to be. Was was Japan the favourites to win the the group with the home field advantage and everything like that. For sure. And, and, and you're forgetting as well that uh, that that could have easily been a loss because Stefano LaBelle saved the penalty mm. in that game. And I think had to be substituted off as soon as she saved the penalty because she was injured or something like that. So um, she th- that was that was a huge game. It's tough going against the host because you don't know if you're going to get a nervous host or you're going to get a pumped up host. Or I think it so, helped that there was no fans because yeah, that could have been a whole oh, different yeah. atmosphere. Yeah, definitely. And so I think I, that those kind of things did play a factor in that I, first game. I think you're right, Michael. It was, it was a measuring stick because Japan has been such quality in the in the women's game for the last number of years. But um, the thing I remember about, about that game and the, the other draw in the group stage was that even though they drew, I felt like they could have or maybe even should have won. Yeah. You know, like, well, it was late goals that they gave up. Because like, the next game, it was a 2-1 win over Chile. Uh, two Janine Becky goals. And then it was yeah. the one all draw with Team GB in the final group game. Team GB then won the group because of that. But it was another late equaliser they gave up. An own goal this time with five minutes to go. So they were giving up late goals. Even in that Chile game, they were 2-0 up and they let Chile get a, a yeah. goal back. So Yeah, that game, that game should have been... I, I remember watching that that game, the Chile game. Like, they should have, like, hammered them. Yeah, they should have been out of sight in that. So, I mean, af- after that, finishing second in the group, and then you see some other surprises, like America finished second in their group. How were you feeling uh, about how it was going and the path ahead? Were you confident... I was pretty sure they'd get to the semi-finals, but then after that, I really wasn't sure. Yeah, it, it was going to be like I, I wasn't as confident because of those um, those goals they gave up and the, some of the results. I really thought they had uh, when when they drew Great Britain, Team GB or whatever. That was the one where I was like, oh, that was their chance to finish the top of the group and maybe have a easier run through the thing, but. It ended up not being the case, and obviously he was wrong in that case. But yeah, I know. It was a like, who bit... knows how things would have played out if they'd actually yeah. won the group as well? It's, it's that it's that interesting things you look back and you go, "Oh, what if that had happened yeah. and they hadn't done this?" And because you thought they had the toughest thing, because they had Brazil in the quarters and then America yeah. in the semis. And if you'd written that on paper, you'd be like, "Oh, that's the toughest, toughest yeah. thing they could have got." Well, they beat Brazil it. in the beat Brazil in the past, so I wasn't that. Over like, but it was the U.S. matchup that I saw that yeah. was yeah. going to be difficult to see. Get I mean, the, the Brazil game. I mean, let's be honest; it was a nervy affair. It wasn't a quality game at all. Both teams, especially, it was nil nil after extra time, and both teams clearly in extra time did not want to lose. No. They, if it had gone straight to penalties, they'd have been very happy with that. Four three win on on penalties got them through to that U.S. game. It was a one nil win in the end over the Yanks. Jesse Fleming, nerves of steel, dispatching that 75th minute penalty. 
And it's like ghost exercise, as you say, Zach, monkeys off back. But it was just such a magical moment. And from covering this team from 2012 onwards, the World Cups, the Olympics, the, like Steve and me went and spoke to a number of the players here on a couple of occasions. It was just great to see these players and the young ones that had come through, we've seen them come through with the Whitecaps, we've seen some of the, the players were playing with TSS in the WPSL and stuff, and it's just fantastic seeing this group of players finally get that win over the US, and deservedly so as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm so happy for the, the, the squad, and so happy for the... the you know, the, the people, the players that have been there for a long time and for those those new young players. One thing I want to say about about Jesse Fleming, which was uh, kind of interesting for me, is that I, like, I really was kind of torn in one sense. Like, I think it was healthy, but it was painful. And that is the whole penalty-taking thing. Because, like, for mm-hmm. me, I wanted Christine Sinclair to take as many penalties as possible. Like, I still wanted to hit 200 before she retires or whatever you know she's never retiring she's 38 she's got another 10 years in her yeah that's that's probably that that, everyone would be okay with that um but um but she hasn't been great at penalties right yeah and so she stopped taking them and then i think becky was taking them and becky had missed the number yeah and you're just like oh come on like this is these we need to be scoring these and so then see jesse fleming step in and just be calm, cool, and collected and uh, decisive and just quality from the spot in massive moments. Yeah, because uh, that, that's the thing as well. If she had missed that, what that oh. would have done to her mentally, Oh yeah, doesn't even bear thinking about. And the thing so is, in one, in one oh, sense, I was sad that Sinclair wasn't the one to do it. But in another sense, I was happy that someone did step up and and got the job done and became that kind of go-to penalty taker. And the thing is, in that game, I, like, honestly, even though normally I'm very nervous, it didn't, there, there was very little coming from the U.S. It's like, yeah. they, oh, whether whether it was, whether they were awful or kind of put them in the position to be awful, uh, whatever the case is, is they, they like, there was no moment in that game after that goal was scored that where you felt the U.S. was coming back. At all. It was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, Steve. But yeah, yeah. It, it was, they, they were very, a very, very poor team. And again, it felt really good to see, to see that as a Canadian. Yes. Just because of their arrogance and even oh, like the so, media yeah. arrogance before it, like, there's no one can... Did, did they lose no the bronze medal match too? No, they won that. They won the bronze, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I just I, I the thing that I enjoy about watching after those kind of games is just going on uh, YouTube and watching the the experts the U.S. experts just talk about the team and everything after a loss like that. Oh, uh, that, that any, any American national team loss, male or female, the meltdown with the experts and the media and the fans—it's I, I, oh, I, wonderful. I, I think the meltdowns more with the men's because they haven't done anything. They do give the women a little bit of you know leeway here and there, but it's still fun to watch. Yeah, and let, let's be honest. Everyone wants to knock off the, the top dog in every sport and every country around the world. Whoever's the, the top team or the top country, everyone's gunning for them. Everyone wants to, to see them lose. So it's set up an Olympic final, Canada versus Sweden. I don't think there's many people would have maybe even pegged either of those teams to, to be in the final. Maybe Sweden, but 
I, I don't think that was probably what, what folk were, were, were expecting. Canada took the lead in this one, but then... Oh, no, no, they didn't. Sweden took the lead in this one. 34th minute, but again, Jesse on the spot. Levelling things in the 68th minute. Then no further goals through the 90, through extra time. Again, it was quite nervy with neither team really fully committing by, by that point. After it was tied up at one all, I was like, oh, this is going to penalties because I just fast, I didn't watch it live. I just fast forwarded through because I knew it was going to penalties. It just felt inevitable. Yeah, it did. It did. Sorry. It, it did totally feel inevitable. Um, and it was, it was an, a, not a fun penalty shootout to watch. No. I remember well, but it was, up, I feel, I feel it was, time it was by that looking time, back it was, now, it was ex it's exciting. But, yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. fun, but it was definitely a roller coaster because it kept going back and forth of who was in charge and everything like that. You know, well, Sweden had missed theirs. They went first and missed. Then Canada scored and went 1-0 up. Then Sweden scored their next two while Canada missed their next two. So then Canada are 2-1 down after the first three kicks. And then Stephanie LeBay just took over. Sweden didn't score any of their next three. Steph saved two of them. And then it all came down to Julia Grosso converting that penalty. A young girl that we've seen come through the white caps, that we, we've seen, as I, I said, playing for TSS. Local girl. Wow. Just, I, I say this in all penalty shootouts for big things. I've said this to my wife before. I don't know if I'm in that situation. What makes your legs even walk up to the spot? <laughs> I, I would, don't know I think I would just freeze I don't know I'd be able to kick it 12 yards and she just finished that with it's, such aplomb and coolness and well, calmness I know I well just, you know, the, <laughs> the, the thing that the thing that saved her was the the power or pace that she put on it because yeah, it wasn't, exactly. it wasn't it a great the, hand. the keeper got a hand to it but it was so strong that it ended up in the roof of the net off of the keeper's hand yeah and yeah, it basically just deflected off. Like it basically went through the hand, and and uh, went upwards. But uh, but it's still uh, Michael is a little right there that it, it, she did come up very calm. There was there was oh, no yeah. sense of nerves there, and she put it where she wanted to put it and, and put it with pace. Yeah, and that's the important thing. Like if you don't put it, you could if you just guide it in there, it, it's it's going to be saved at this point. Because yeah, and and hitting it people, with hitting it with force is risky as well because you can blast it over. Like yeah. the like the Swedish penalty kick just yeah. before that happened, they just she, she was skied it. I think it was yeah. I think it was one of their best players, uh, like in their history or whatever during overtime or whatever. As, as much as I, as much as I think it's debatable that it wasn't the greatest penalty taken, it doesn't matter. She got the no. I mean, I'm not saying it. it was a great penalty, but I just feel she was cool, calm, and collected to take yeah. it. Oh yes, yeah. She just wanted to get force in it and get it in, and, and she did that. I mean, as, as Steve said, absolute roller coaster. These are the kind of games and situations that make or break players. And in Julia Grosso's case, it set her off now in a great career that she's hopefully going to have o over in Europe and stuff. And the ce and the celebration was fantastic. Oh, too. I mean, like, that brought tears to your eyes. Seeing yeah. Karina LeBlanc in it tears did. and really emotional. In there the were studio. tears in my eyes. Were there yeah. tears in both your eyes? Yeah. I, like, genuine. How could you not? How could you yeah. watch that? You'd have to just be made of steel not to to fill up during such an emotional moment, I think. Let's hear a little bit of audio now from Bev Priestman. This is from a call that she did with media in August once she came back 
haven't featured it on the show before. This is her just talking about changing the colour of the medal, the desire of this team to do that, and what they achieved in Tokyo. There's lots of different compartments and obviously I've had the chance to now reflect. I think the first thing was is setting out the vision. I think that drives everything and changing the colour of the medal. They they truly were going after that and what that meant. Um, but I think like I would use some words around hunger. Like, you know, I, I talk about we are back to back bronze, but some of the analogies I've used around if you keep reading over the last chapter, you won't write the next chapter. Um, and, and just like hunger, desire, fresh faces, the depth in the group and trust in the depth in the group. I, I knew coming into this tournament, I want to be the best coach at this tournament at utilising depth and using the five subs, which was unique to this particular tournament. So there was many different factors, but I think actions speak louder than words in, in the belief and the trust and, you know, how I tried to operate with the group, some of the, the conversations we had. Um, even down to what happens on a training pitch. Um, I just, I felt the time was right. And, and even as a coach, I think when we got through that Brazil game, um, I knew then, right, okay, we're going all the way. And I think the players probably felt that and knew that, but there's been various moments in my short tenure, the US game the first time, the England game. There's moments where you stand on the sideline and, and players feel it on the pitch where you go, yeah, we can absolutely do this. And and then I think using numbers to tell stories always backs it up. So I think we've gone now 11 games unbeaten. Throughout the tournament, I'm trying to fill them with confidence that, you know, these numbers don't lie and this is what winning teams need to do. So I think a blend of a lot of things, and I can't put my finger on it, but I think um, they could look each other, they could look me in the eye and they knew that we have it in us. We've just got to turn up and be brave. And if we do that... We can be anyone on our day, and that was sort of the message. So Bev Priestman there just chatting about that historic moment in Canadian soccer. Gold medal winners, and Canada now just have to, to build on that. They're a team now that's going to have a target on their back. Folks going to want to knock them off at the next World Cup next year down in Australia and New Zealand. Now, FIFA are having their end-of-year best-off awards on January 17th. And there's some Canadian interest in the nominees in some categories, but a very notable absence in the final selections was Bev Priestman as Women's Coach of the Year. Now, she was in the original five-women shortlist, or five-person shortlist, I should say, um, but didn't make the top three after it was whittled down. The top three being Louis Cortez from FC Barcelona. Now, he did win a treble with, with FC Barcelona, so at club level, fantastic achievement. Emma Hayes at Chelsea, and Serena Wiegmann, who managed the Dutch and the English national teams. And well, somehow a, she gets nominated instead of the gold medal winner. It's, it's pretty impressive, though. She lost uh, uh, to probably competitions with two national teams. It's pretty good. Yeah, it takes some going. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's unbelievable. It, it's like it. It's asinine. I, I, I cannot believe when I saw that. I saw Herdman's tweet about it. I was like, wait, what? 
Oh, the outrage from the women's players, and rightly so, and like the media, and like I, I know it's easy to look at this from a Canadian perspective, but this woman has just won the the gold medal. Now you can argue what's the most important: the Olympic gold or World Cup winners. They're There's the no two major, two major championships that women can win. Beth Priestman's won one of them, and she doesn't even make the top three nominees. Yeah. I just I don't get that at all. No. I don't know how any is is this just how the Olympics are maybe looked at by people elsewhere awesome. in the world that to them it wasn't the World Cup it was only the Olympics. I I I, I always thought that the uh, the for the men's soccer that the Olympics weren't that important, but I always thought that the for the women's it was. It was it, it, it is, I thought it is so more too. important for the women's. It is an easier tournament to win with the less amount of teams and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, of but still. It's it's crazy. It's still a major achievement. Yeah, and it's the first time Canada has done it. Yeah. It's yeah. I I won't go on a big rant, but I think everybody listening to this will be like, "Why is Bev Priestman not nominated?" Certainly, something I'd love to speak to her about. Elsewhere in the awards, Stephanie LeBay is up for Female Goalkeeper of the Year. I think, she, or I would have said, I would have thought she was a shoe in because of her performance in that final with the saves. But who knows if, if Priestman's not even making the top three nominees. Well, there, there might be somebody out there that had a great club season too, so we don't know that. Yeah. So that, that's the thing you have to look at too. Christine Sinclair was in the long list for Female Player of the Year, but then Marta's always in that and, and various things like that. She didn't make the final three, and there was one Canadian who's in the short list for the Women's World Eleven. And that is the defender Kadisha Buchanan. So, I mean, overall, it's been a, a great year for the national team. So, I, I guess to kind of finish this bit off, you, you can say what's next, and obviously it's the World Cup. They do have a target on their back, and the expectation now, Steve, is they've got to go and perform at the World Cup. Yeah, uh, I think that's obviously the biggest, uh, the next big step. Obviously, it's a little bit of a, um, I don't know when they're going to hold it. Uh, like, I know it's, it's scheduled June for, and July next year is the, the current yeah, schedule. Yeah, 20, 2023, right? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah. so I, I I knew they were, like, they're going to hold it around that time, but, uh, like, is it going to be held at that time? Who knows what what's going to happen? Maybe it's something that gets delayed as well. I think as um, long as Novak Djokovic isn't taking part, it should all go quite smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's the biggest thing because there have been tournaments even in like uh, other sports that have been international tournaments that have been cancelled recently. So it's just a matter of seeing. It. By then, hopefully everything gets back to normal. But we said that last year too. Yeah. So I, I'd love to go down for it because I've always wanted to go to Australia, and New Zealand, and this is just a great chance. And obviously, yeah. I've been watching the A League and seeing all these venues and this I have a pl- amazing stadiums. I have a place to stay in New Zealand, and it's it, it's going to be uh, cooler. It's not going to be that warm as yeah. well because it's in the it's, it's in the it's winter. winter. Yeah, it's in that, winter, that was so. like that's why I was like, oh, it's ideal. I, I still might, but yeah. I don't know. We'll see. See how the lie the land is. But I mean, that, that's the thing, Zach. It's like they've got to now go and follow this up, I feel, with a strong showing at the World Cup. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's. You're looking been... at least quarterfinals, maybe better. Oh, well, yeah. And that's been the kind of the, the thing that's been dis- disappointing about these bronze medals is that they haven't been followed up with quality performances yeah. at World Cups, including 
one that was hosted that Canada hosted. So I know that's um, the biggest disappointment because you just ah uh, you you just were so sure they'd get to at least the semis. And that game at BC Place against England it was tragic. Yeah, that they lost that game, but um, yeah. So you yeah you hope they can move forward, and I think if the talent kind of keeps coming through, and if Priestman can continue to to coach them in such a way as to get the best out of them. I mean, things are, things are, I mean, obviously the time is ticking for Sinclair as much as we were joking about it before. Yeah. But she's, if, she's probably got the next world cup in her. And then I think that probably will be it. Yeah. At the most. <laughs> like that's, I, I can't see her. I mean, she might just be a bit part player, but she's going to want to, to go. You think? I, yeah, I think she would have hung her. Like, I think she would have quit after the Olympics. Yeah, if she was at international she, level. Okay, I, 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 I feel like if she didn't, yeah, if she didn't have any interest in the the next World Cup, it would have been ideal to retire right after going out on a high note and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I, I don't I see kinda, her or a Tiba ever hanging their boots up. To- I, 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 I really hope she gets to the two hundred though. Yeah, I can't see that. I have to say, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. She's still a long way off that. And she hasn't been scoring as frequently. I think she only scored two goals last year. What is she at, though? Isn't she at like 189 or someone? I want to say 187, but it could be 189. That's still a lot to go when you've only scored two goals in the last year. That was from 12 games, I believe. Just let her take the penalties and friendlies. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, to, to bring on the next crop of talent, Obviously, we need to develop a stronger domestic game in the country. We need professional teams in Canada. We need a professional league in Canada. We need more opportunities for these girls to play and for the, the girls coming through college to come out to to have these opportunities to play. And we're going to have some of that, at least in BC. League 1 BC is starting. We've got the WPSL. We'll touch on both those things shortly. But this is what we need to do. We need to have these opportunities to come. And that is kind of what we're going to be focusing on over the next two parts. One of the women that is going to have a big responsibility in developing the next crop of young talent in BC is Whitecaps Director of Women's Football Development, Emma Humphreys. And I got a chance to sit down with her a couple of weeks ago just to chat about all things Whitecaps and the domestic game here. And we will be back chatting to her after this. Hi, I'm Maxine Kippel from the Vancouver Whitecaps, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, we've gone all Canadian on you. We've even gone all Vancouver, because it's Vancouver band, You Say Party, with the first single taken from their 2005 debut album, Hit the Floor. That was The Gap Between the Rich and the Poor. The band were originally called You Say Party, We Say Die. They're now known as You Say Party, dropping the latter part of the name after the tragic death of drummer Devin Clifford on stage at the Rickshaw Theatre here in Vancouver back in 2010. Fantastic local band. And I thought for the last two parts of this show, I would play some female-fronted Canadian music for you guys But that was The Gap, and there's several gaps in women's soccer between the top national teams and the upcoming countries, between countries that have really strong domestic leagues and countries that don't. And sadly, Canada falls into that latter category because while the rest of the world have kind of moved on, NWSL set up and thriving in the US, you've got the the leagues over in England and Scotland, over in Europe that are just going from strength to strength. Canada still lags behind. No professional league here yet. No professional teams currently here in Canada. Hopefully that is something that will change. And that is something we're going to kind of focus on over the next two parts of the show today. First up, we're going to bring you this episode's feature interview. And it's with the woman tasked with spearheading the Whitecaps as they try to get back into the the club scene on a a serious level. Emma Humphreys was named the Director of Women's Football Development at the Whitecaps back in September last year. Returning to the Whitecaps, where she made her name between 2014 and 2018 as Girls Director and Head Coach of the Whitecaps Rex programme back then. Emma and her wife Bev Priestman then headed off to England and did a lot of good work over there before returning to Canada in September last year. And Emma is spearheaded with taking the women's programme at the Whitecaps to the next level, both on a playing side and on a coaching side as well. And also she's tasked with launching the new League 1 BC women's team, that the Whitecaps will have starting in May this year. So some very exciting developments. Was looking forward to chatting to Emma for quite a while. Got a chance to sit down with her a few weeks ago now. So we're going to bring you that interview just now. So go put the kettle on, make your favourite hot beverage a choice, sit back and enjoy our chat with Whitecaps Director of Women's Football Development, Emma Humphreys. So delighted now to say that we're joined by Emma Humphreys, Director of Women's Football Development at the Whitecaps at the moment. A woman that's got a long history with the Whitecaps and she's back to take charge of the women's programme. Thank you for joining us today, Emma. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So Emma, it's a, a busy time for you at the moment. I know you've been going around all the academies in, in Canada and everything just now. 
for people that that's unaware of your role and what you do, what what is your your role with the Whitecaps at the moment? So I think my uh, my role with the Whitecaps specifically is largely around aligning all of our rec centres across the country. So we now run uh, in a rec centre in Alberta, um, in Calgary, and in Edmonton. We just set them up this past year. Um, and we also have rec centres throughout Western Canada as well. So when I was in last time uh, for five, for almost a five-year period, I was the head coach of our rec centre here in Vancouver. Uh, now I'm kind of overseeing and making sure I'm aligning curriculum, making sure messaging is consistent across the country and consistent across centres that aren't uh, super rec centres as well to make sure that we're giving everyone a chance across Canada, not just those kind of living inside of our bigger centres. And it's not just from a player's point of view that you're doing this as well, because it's coaches as well and bringing through the the next level of coaches in the game. Is that something that you're really enjoying doing as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the club is super committed to um, having more female coaches as well, working within our, our network. We've just appointed two top female coaches as head coaches in Alberta. As I said, we're sort of sort of making our way across the country. And it's certainly not to say that men don't have a place working in women's football. They absolutely do. But, but you know, at the same time, we, we absolutely need to increase the amount of female coaches that are that are working at the highest level so uh yeah I see that as a key part of my role um you know it's it's in helping upskill uh all of our rec center head coaches provide opportunities um again outside of the super centers because we certainly don't like I, I come from a country that is is smaller than some of our like smaller centers and we produce a country that can play at a world cup so I'm a big believer that you know we, we must be missing some talent in in some of our um supposedly smaller centers as well so that being coaches that being um players that being you know everyone that's associated within the pathway as well yeah canada i think until you get here you don't really like you know it's a big country but until you get here and you start traveling around it or dealing with people all over you don't quite realize how how big it is and obviously i'm from scotland it's a small country new zealand's a a, a small country but we'll take a little backtrack initially through your career um just now as well so as you mentioned you were girls director here at the white caps and head coach of the the, the girls program of the white caps from 2014 to, to 2018 in your time here you brought through some some top quality talent and you just look at the the recent olympics and players that that won the gold medal you brought them through from an early age jordan hutema julia grosso they, they were all in your program when you look back at that initial time how, how do you look back at that time and d- did you know that these players had what it took to go out and then perform at the top top level i think uh the, the answer is no like I, it's not um it's not an exact science player development um i think we always knew that both those two kids had high potential um but a lot of kids have high potential um, and not a lot of kids. There's, you know, there's, 
there's a group of kids at that kind of top level that you go, okay, you have potential to one day play for Canada. Um, and I think you, you can see that fairly early, which, which are the kids that kind of have the core technical, tactical, as well as physical attributes that could mesh together. So, yeah, I did. I think, I think we did see something in, in those two in particular. Uh, I, think, I think there could with time be a few more that sort of come out of that cycle. People sort of still forget that Jordan's 21 and Julia's only 22 as well. And, you know, in, in the modern game now, uh, females are only really starting to break through into that team now at a much later age, which is, which is a really good thing as well for the maturity of the, of the game. But, um, you know, looking back, I think, I think it was just like us investing in the future. It wasn't an easy um, time period either because we were sort of trying to make change. Um, John had inspired everyone with that first bronze medal when when we first came in. And it was sort of our job coming in and and leading the rec centres to then put that plan into action. And we got a lot wrong (laughs) as well. We got, you know, we made many mistakes along the way as well. in trying to decipher what exactly is meant by by each thing, um, but I think I think some of the core attributes and some of the things we were really strong on probably helped um, helped you know these two coming to. For example, like it was the first time we'd ever uh, put a program in that young. So to have like we did have Julia and Jordan from from I think Jordan was twelve, Julia was thirteen years old. Um, in the past, girls elite was sort of more that. Uh, 16 to 18 age group uh so certainly targeting best with best from a younger age would have absolutely helped those two and uh you know john was big on um if you're good enough you're old enough and and uh although i think that that threshold now is getting older which is like i said a good thing i think that philosophy of exposing kids at the right time and taking chances on on kids was was a really good thing too so when when you left the the program in 2018, obviously yourself and Bev went over to to England. At, at that time from your career, were you kind of just wondering what direction you you wanted to go? And then how did the Liverpool opportunity come about? Yeah, well, it was you know on a personal level, like it was just an absolutely crazy time because uh, our son was two months old. Yeah. Um, and we sort of uh, I don't know if you remember, but we we got really close to having a women's team. Uh, in Vancouver, really close. Yeah. Um, it didn't quite happen for whatever reasons that, you know, make sense. Um, however, for me, it was sort of like that felt like the next step. I, I wanted to get into the women's professional game, um, which is probably crazy, you know, having a, a two-month-old. It was sort of um, – I, I just I, – I knew I always wanted to get back into the workforce quite quickly. Um so no, it wasn't. It wasn't random. Like I, when we sort of, it's it's not easy kind of having two people that work in high performance in in football. But um, we, you know, we did target England for that reason. Uh, we both felt at this at that point in our careers that we needed something different. Um, you know, Bev had been an assistant uh, for a while with Canada in various roles, um, and. It also uh, done U17, U20 for multiple cycles at that point. And, you know, she sort of felt she was ready for a different challenge. Um, and what, what that brought with her in England was um, a, a, an ability to just do one role as an assistant coach. And she got that opportunity. For me, it was I wanted to get into the professional game and, 
and the the where the crazy part comes is I had no leads. Like I'm a Kiwi. <laughs> Kiwis aren't known for football. We're known for rugby. Um, and uh, and I kind of yeah just told myself I was going to do it. So I just I had Jack at home. Our our little. I think he was, you know, at the startup. I when I was kind of applying for jobs, he was about four months old, um, and I just, I just sort of got to know everyone and in the community, and and you know, spoke about some of the things we'd done in Canada, um, talked a little bit about some of my ideas that you know we'd wanted to implement here. And then, yeah, eventually I was just sort of connected with the head coach at, at Liverpool. I had a couple of uh, other uh, opportunities that, that could have um, got me into the sort of top level youth space as well. Um, but I really wanted to work um, with senior players. So I uh, and just have that experience in the professional game. Um, so, yeah, I got to meet Vicky Jepson, the head coach at the time. And and uh, yeah, we just hit it off well and and it kind of. It kind of worked from there. It's such a, a big soccer city, obviously. And when I left, I, I left Scotland in 2007. Throughout the UK, the women's game was still pretty much a, a very basic level. It didn't get a lot of respect. It, it was the butt of a lot of jokes and some of the, the football comedy shows. I can't believe how far it, it's come in that country and you've you've got BBC and BBC Scotland showing highlight shows and Scotland's a little bit behind England but we're getting more and more professional teams to see the growth of the game in a country like that what what was it like to be a part of that and has it given you a taste to then grow the great the, the game in places like here or even back in New Zealand yeah ab- absolutely even when we I think even in the time we were in England, which was only two and a half years, um, the game just exploded while we were there. Um, and it, it was quite exciting to be a part of. Like, I think when we left, we always we always felt that um, that the WSL had, had big potential. We felt like it would be the next place to take off. But even uh, it would have been three and a half years ago, the game was in a much different place to now when I look at the league and the signings and, you know, all the best players and not all the best, um, uh, but but a lot of the best players in Europe, um, you know, some, some Americans have gone to play in the league too now, uh, a lot of Australians, just it's probably the most like <laughs> uh, players from different countries around the world in that league. And it's it's just, yeah, it's turned into a top league. The, um, I mean, it, it comes alongside investment. So, yes, uh, you know, Barclays put in a massive uh, amount of money into the league. Um, the clubs, it helps having big clubs that that back a league for sure. Um, and England has just really well established clubs to where women's football was sort of ready to uh, to take everything on. Now, you know, it, that comes with its pros and cons because I would say the established clubs are, um, are men's established clubs, you know, and um, and so I think it was ready to explode and ready to kind of move forward. I also think that the uh, NWSL is in a great place too. I, well, you know, on, on the pitch uh, in terms yeah. of performances. I think, you know, America has a really unique um, culture around women's football. And they have uh, women's football designed clubs. 
and uh, and so it's it's fascinating to see how the different leagues around the world are kind of exploding. And I, I was saying to me every other day, it's it's actually getting to a part now where you have so many professional leagues around the world that you're getting styles of play a bit more like the men's game. You know, you know that the Spanish league is going to be the style now. You know, you know that Eng- like English teams play typically like this, you know, and and this is what, you know, attributes and, and players that they're looking for. You know, the American league's looking for this. And and so it's, it's, it's getting to that point where there's very definite different pockets that are going to make the game hit another level as well. The, the growth, especially in England, investment was a big part of it. Their success at the 2015 World Cup here captured so many people's attention over there as well. It's weird because here, we've talked in Canada before, uh, when the bronze was won in 2012, it's like, oh, this is going to be the start of the growth of the women's game. And then another bronze, oh, this is going to be the start, hosting the World Cup. Oh, it's going to really trigger things. Now a gold medal. And I, I asked Bev this a, a couple of months ago as well, and she said there are things in the work. Just because it's gone quiet publicly doesn't mean things aren't happening. But you, you're so entrenched in the women's game here. Can you believe we still don't have a professional club? That there's a place that Canadian players, if they don't want to go overseas, they've got no options here. No, it's absolutely like it has to be the legacy of this gold medal. It, it has to be. It's, you know, it's it's a big part of why Bev and I came back. Like we see the potential in this country. I think we're both people, like I said, we didn't go to England with the league where it's at now or the England team where it's at now. Like we like to look for uh, a country with the highest potential for growth. And right now, like I think that's Canada. It's, you know, how, how it's got to this point, I I don't know, but it's it's fascinating to me. Not you talk about professional football, but I take it a step further and I say, you know, like the fact that this country doesn't have a league is, uh, is yes. you know, like it, I, I don't know how it's got to that point, but I would say it's probably the only country in the top 50. Um, and I think that's a fair estimate, if not higher. Um, and now I know there's geography, I know there's, you know, I, I hear all the reasons, but it's, it absolutely has to be done. And, and then, uh, yeah, the game is professional now, you know, at the top end. And my biggest thing in my shoes is obviously I'm, I'm here to take our best 12 year olds and, and do everything I possibly can to when they're leaving at 17, I prepare, I prepare them ready for whatever that next step is. But what is a little bit concerning is we have so much talent like across this country, we have so many good players. Um, I think we're accounting for the early developers, the ones that absolutely scream talent to you. You know, you, you and f- that can be for various reasons. Um, usually, it's it's the physical specimens that you that you see kind of come forward quickly. You know, Jordan physically was was always very advanced, um, uh, and same with quite a lot of you know even Jessie. Yes, she was small, but she had an unbelievable engine uh, from a young age. Um, so. Uh, what I don't think we're accounting for without having a league or without having professional avenues is our top players, when they leave uh, a, a Rex or whether it's they leave their university at this point, they are competing in the NWSL with the top 
um, uh, players in the world for a foreign spot on the on the rosters. That's a very hard ask in the modern game to do. And some kids will be able to do it, but and you know, fair play, that's awesome. But we also have talent that won't quite be ready for that yet at 21, 22 years old. Um, and then to play in Europe, you know, it's much easier if you have a European passport, uh, which which cuts out a lot of Canadians too. Or if you're not playing uh, over 50% of games for Canada right now, which is also difficult to do because we've got a good team. Um, or, you know, you don't have above 50 caps or whatever limit is, then WSL is almost out the question. So when you kind of put that on the table in terms of professional avenues, we have, and with the talent pool we have is the second biggest women's football country in the world uh, in terms of player base, then we absolutely need a league. We need to start with a league and, uh, and I think absolutely we need professional football. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I commentate on the UBC games and I've seen so many talented women come through that programme with no outlet. Like Jasmine Mander is a fantastic example she could have gone on and, and played pro but there was i guess not the opportunities for her yeah don't and tell it, her that though because she's got a big head so <laughs> well, like, <laughs> ubc and trinity western there's so much yeah. talent there watching yeah. them play this yeah. season has been incredible mm-hmm. now obviously there is going to be a, an outlet league one bc all the seven teams that's coming into it next year they all have to have women's teams and I'm involved with TSS and I know they've got their women's programme and the Whitecaps now obviously have a place now for for these girls to to go and play. How excited are you about that opportunity? It's a semi-professional league. Probably it will end up being more amateur, I think, initially. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of money flying around, but just to have that league now and something for these girls to go and do and the college girls to go and do when they they finish their, their college season. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I said it earlier, leagues are so important to this country. Um, we're really, ex- and one of the parts with, with Rex that's been really difficult, and, you know, I probably said I got a few things wrong. Um, not, not necessarily wrong, just like the balance, the balance of things. Boys teams are great to play against technically um, and technically, but to really feel the emotion of the game, which is why we all play, Um Women's games are important and finding like a good level uh, for our Rex groups to play in is so key. And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited, not just for the players, you know, like it's, it's a kind of go, why did I feel at that point after being a head coach for four years that I felt I needed a, a different step, you know, and I kind of look back at that answer and I'm like a competitive outlet to keep coaching staff, um, to keep everyone challenge is is so important too and for our players to learn how to perform under pressure where it's not just um not just friendly games uh and still play you know a good style of football still working towards progressive attributes that we want to see in future canadian players so i'm not saying like changing how you play to win i'm saying like to learn what it takes to win is really important part of development and i think that that's a layer we haven't had in rex and it's going to make rex hit another level for sure in, in preparation for for this i read some of your your old interviews that that you've done in, in a couple of places and one of the things that really stood out going back to your own playing career was the fact that you fell out of love with the game and you took a, a couple of years away. 
what was it specifically at that time that made you fall out of love with the game and how much has coaching rekindled that that love that that you have now yeah I guess it's possibly a little bit similar to some of the concepts I've talked about I I played at university um you know outside of my own country I went to the states to play um kind of just got a little bit lost in a system that that I didn't know you know and I think uh I'd always been this kid that had come through a system in New Zealand with, you know, reasonable talent. Um, you know, I'd played with my U20s at 14 and and I had uh, played for about five years with the senior team at um, 22 years old. So I kind of like I'd, I'd been to one World Cup, but not like I hadn't performed at a level that I should have been able to perform at either. You know, so I don't. Like I think I always look back at my football and, and my personal playing and sort of felt like I never sort of reached everywhere I, I could have possibly got to. Um, you know, when I look back, it's it's more internal. But but um, certainly I think what did, didn't help that is kind of having structures where you sort of left and you left to your own devices without being tracked. And I just sort of floated through it. And then trying to come back in and be super competitive at a time where John had taken the New Zealand team. I played for John uh, Herdman in New Zealand um, to a complete another level. And, and I just, uh, yeah, I guess like for me, I, I just didn't, I didn't continue that path. Uh, all the best players at that point were training in New Zealand and I was sort of having fun in America. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I needed some time to kind of, um, figure that out for myself and and I became a teacher so I have my master's degree in teaching I'm an oh. undergraduate in psychology and a master's in teaching so um I yeah I just thought you know like I've always I've always liked people um and I uh, thought well, maybe I'll become a, a teacher I became a history teacher so which I know seems quite probably quite boring sorry yeah well no because <laughs> I, that's when I was at high school, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a history teacher. And then in the end, I ended up not going and doing history at university. And I, I went, I, I'm not very kid-friendly. They annoy me. So I thought, I don't think I can be a teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I just, like, similar maybe to you, I, I always really liked history. I had a fascination. And, yeah, it sort of happened by chance because it happened through social studies. I'd studied, uh, studied psychology, then ended up being placed in history. I just really enjoyed it. So... And then, and then I kind of on the side got into coaching and then, you know, after probably two or three years, I then like decided that I really missed the game and uh, sorry, long winded version of, of your question. But, um, but yeah, I think like sometimes it takes taking a step away to realize what you want. And I knew at that point, like that I had unfinished business in football. I think I have a passion, particularly for those younger age groups because of that reason, because for whatever reason, it just didn't quite work out for me. And, but, but I love that side of it because I'm like, right, like how, how do we make this the right environment for kids to come through? And certainly how do we keep people in the game longer? Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's such an exciting time on the pitch for, for women's soccer just now in, in Canada, th throughout the world. Obviously, it's not been a good year off the pitch for it. Everything that's happened in the NWSL, a lot of coaches resigned, the Whitecaps, obviously historical things as an investigation there. When you're speaking to, to players, parents just now, is there a concern 
how safe the women's game is? Is that something that's flagged up? Are you surprised that all these things are coming out or were you just knowing that this was a ticking time bomb that was going to come out at some point? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a it's a really interesting time for women's sport. Like I say women's sport just in general. This this period we're in right now is going to redefine women's sport. And it's, it's a good thing. Um, these conversations absolutely need to be had and they need to be brought forward um, in order for the game to move forward. So I think like, I think on that end, that that's, that's really important. Um, in terms of how, how kids kind of interact with those stories or more, like you say, it's not the kids, it's, it's the parents that yeah. naturally would ask questions. I think because we, we are far more proactive in the modern game now um, in this space, so our kids are always told right from the outset what processes are and what normal situations are and what abnormal situations are. You know, we've, we've, we now have safe sport that at the start of every season and we have a massive banner at the Rex training ground with all contact details and, like, as so if there's ever any kind of question around that, either be a parent or a um or a player with any kind of concern, they they know that because the problem is they may not just come to me. You know, yes, I'm a female, but um, I'm also in charge of decision making. Um, so male, female, it actually doesn't matter. They need an outside um, source that they don't feel like their place will be um, jeopardized if if something goes wrong for them, and that's that's absolutely needed. And and our kids, you know, from a very young age, grow up knowing that. Um, like I said, it's it's right in front of them. They get reminded of it uh, constantly. We do safeguarding uh, courses with our players as well, um, consistently across the year. So I, I do feel like they're far more empowered in the in the modern world. And and like if I, if I was a parent coming in and I didn't know these things or was outside our system, I probably would have more questions around that. But I actually haven't fielded that many questions. Actually, none from parents now in saying that like like I've just noted they may not always come to me directly but I certainly even informal conversations haven't really had it and I and I'm hoping and I feel like we're doing a better job of of education around this and like I said hoping that that's actually a result of of that yeah I mean let's just hope that everything gets out and we move into next year because it seems in the NWSL it's just every couple of weeks or months something new is coming out but but let's finish on a, a more positive subject I, I want to ask what it was like for you watching Canada win that gold medal seeing your wife take that team to the gold I mean how excited how nervous were you just what was what was that like for you oh it's honestly it's a bit of a blur um yeah I sort of I remember getting up at like crazy hours like everyone else does and it was sort of one of those things that like it was like oh we've got another game now you know I like the crazy part for me is I've I, like I've I've seen many parts of Bev's journey I've I've seen loads of times where she's failed <laughs> I've seen loads of times where, where there is no next game when a U20 team doesn't qualify and then it feels like the end of the world you know like but like it yeah it was sort of it's sort of because of all of that because of 
like I've kind of been on that journey. It was almost surreal that that we kept going through each game. And uh, yeah, for the penalty uh, kicks, I was running late to get Jack to daycare and it, he was screaming in the background. I was trying to entertain him, trying to tell him that mummy's on TV while trying to like focus. So I think that took the pressure off me. I was just like, uh, it was chaos at home. And I still haven't watched them back yet. Um, I still haven't like taken taking everything in, but just I just remember going for a run. I I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, like when I dropped Jack off, I, I just went for a run and just like had this like massive high. Like a, oh I, yeah, you know it was just like like you know when you've been a part of the journey um, all the way. You know I, I believed in everything uh, John said from from the beginning. You know I'd seen it happen in my own country. Um, so I, I knew that John was special with his development pathways and, and obviously Bev's worked for John for a long time. And, and this, this time around, she made it her own, you know, she, she took that next step on in, in her own way. And by the way, John with the men's doing amazing as well. Yeah. So anyone that underestimated or said a woman's coach can't do it, I bet they're eating their words now. Yeah. I, um, I, I was one that had doubts. I've got to say. <laughs> But it was more it was more about how some of the male players would find his approach. And I think the ones that didn't like that approach have kind of gone out the door. And that's their loss. So <laughs> I think just, just knowing Johnny's a winner. Like yeah. he's an absolute winner. And when you're when you're a winner like that, you, you find a way. And uh, you know, it's it's hard because when you're part of it, it's like, oh everyone else everyone else think you'll say that regardless so you can't you can't say too much because we were obviously on the inner but um but no he, he changed the game here on the woman's side and you know then then Bev uh was lucky to to follow him and then and then sort of is is making it her own at the moment yeah um so no just just being part of the whole journey it just felt amazing yeah I I spoke to to Adam Day after it and because because with kind of soccer you can't get to speak to Bev it's like you get one question on a zoom every now and again and that's basically it but it's like he when he told me oh yeah the coaches don't get gold medals it's like what oh man how yeah but, yeah but anyway thank you so much for your time today Emma I could talk to you for hours it's, um really really appreciate that good luck with everything that you're doing good luck with League One BC next year looking forward to, to seeing the team in that Whitecaps Director of Women's Football Development, Emma Humphreys there, just chatting all things about the Whitecaps programme, the development of the women's game in Vancouver and throughout Canada, and a lot more besides. We're going to unpack some of the things that she said and just look at the state of the women's game here in Canada at club level after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's another female-fronted Canadian band, Metric. Still my favourite song of theirs from 2005's Live It Out album. That was Monster Hospital. So in this final part of this episode, we're going to just kind of unpack a a few of the things that I I spoke about with Emma Humphreys there in the last part. Really enjoyed chatting to Emma. She was just so so open and honest with everything. And we'll we'll speak to her a lot more this year as well as League One BC gets underway. I still find it crazy that there's still not any professional female teams in Canada. The, the legacy of the 2015 World Cup was the hope that there was going to be a, at least one NWSL team. There's been talk about professional leagues here, the CPL having a female league. Now, obviously, BC League One is going to help that because there's seven new teams coming in, lots of opportunities for young female players to, to come out of college wherever they've been playing their club soccer just now, out of the academies and, and play in this league. So you've got all these opportunities there. You've got the college game here, which is so strong. UBC Thunderbirds, Trinity Western Spartans, two fantastic programmes in 2021 on the women's side. And they were just outstanding with the, the talent that they had on their roster. There's this new WPSL Canadian division that it's not quite what I feel they're making it out to be and I've had a little bit of experience with WPSL in the past TSS Rovers were were in that league for a bit with their women's team and it was a bit of an organisational nightmare at times so hopefully that has vastly improved but it's not what we need in, in Canada Zach, it's not the professional league, League 1 BC is not the professional league I guess that the first question in, in, in this to you is, can Canada support an NWSL team and support a professional league, or does it have to be one or the other? I'm talking about a top-level professional league. Yeah, I, I think, well, I, just, to, just to be clear, I think League One BC is a, is a, is a good step. The problem is it doesn't feel like a big enough step for you know, where things are at or where no. things it's be. a development league. Yeah. But you need it's a it's a definitely a, an important piece of the puzzle that is really, really needed. But we're um, not going to be see Canadian internationals in this unless they're time, unless they're no. not able to travel because of COVID and they need somewhere yeah. to play. Yeah. Uh I, I think Canada can have its own top level women's league eventually. And I personally would prefer that to NWSL teams. I would as well. However, I think you you're probably my guess at this moment right now is you might see an NWSL team before you see an actual league, just because of yeah. it. You know, having one or two of the NWSL teams is easier than you know starting up a, a whole new league. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to think that we we won this gold medal and. We still don't have a we still don't have a league, um, but I mean, yeah. the, the, the word in the street is there are things going on behind the scenes. It's just they're not being made public. Yes, I, oh, I mean, I, there are people I, I I have heard of people who are uh, 
actively pursuing the possibility of NWSL for sure. Um, uh, an actual league and stuff, uh, other than, you know, that being an ideal down the road for CPL in the same way that, you know, promotion relegation is an ideal for them down the road. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if it's been discussed more than that because they're dealing with all the financial realities of, mm. you know, birthing a new league and it being a toddler, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, and two years off, not actually having yeah, proper exactly, seasons. Exactly. The pandemic, the, the, I mean, the pandemic couldn't, you know, couldn't make things worse. You know, you could have yeah. in a, in a non, if we were in a non pandemic reality, I think Canada wins that gold medal and yeah, there is like an announcement that a league starting like not maybe not the following summer, but the summer after that. You know what I mean? Like if 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 people were open to making that kind of investment with you know knowing that people are going to be able to go to stadiums and support in that kind of way. But I think you you're, you ask a good question of you know is there the support for it? And I think I think there is, but I think like with all things when it comes to football clubs in Canada. You, you really have to do it in the right way. And um, we've seen some clubs in our, in our country maybe, you know, st- stumble, you know, thinking about, like, for example, FC Edmonton. Mm. Uh, you, you mean, you're talking about the women's game. It's not hard to think of examples of clubs who've stumbled and made errors when it comes to the women's game. Um, well, you just have to look at the NWSL because there's been a few clubs there that haven't been the most stable. There's been clubs moved and... It's a it's a lot better than it was, and it's mm. a lot better NWSL than it has been with previous North American women's leagues. Yeah, but but when you like when I first come to Canada, there was a Whitecaps team. Ottawa had a team, and we've gone backwards, and that's just the strange thing for me, Steve. And that the, there's no doubt there's quality players, and. There's the young players coming through. There's the internationals that might want to come back, depending on where they're playing, especially, I guess, the ones that's maybe more US-based than ones in Europe. But I, I do agree with Zach, Steve. I, I think an NWSL team is way more likely right now than a, a full-blown pr- professional league. Yeah, the problem is that for me right now, I don't, like, similar to the CPL when it first came out, I w- even the back then for the CPL, I wasn't sure if there was enough depth. And I don't know if there's enough depth to support a whole league in W uh, in a women's uh, soccer league, I for me the league one. I know you're not saying it's the same level, but it's a development league. It's going to develop the depth that you need to yep. make a league coming up in, at the top level. And so I think that's important. I don't know. Does Ontario have a women's like a league yep. one? I think yep. so that they so do. that you're you're, you're going to be able to get players out of that. This League One in BC will do it. I'm sure Quebec has something yep. similar as well. And, so, like Emma said there as well, what's been missing is a place to get these late developers because not yep. everyone's going to be a 15-year-old phenon that can just suddenly go in the national team. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, there's players that's going to be 19, 20, 21, 22 that are starting to come on to their game. And I've seen so many really good players at college level over the last 10 years that's just been lost to the game. And that's because the thing. Like, for them. We we've talked about with Canadian men's that there was nothing between the ages of like nineteen to twenty two that could be a, a developer. In for women, it's probably even a bigger gap, like seventeen to twenty three or something that you lose. And I think because there's no professional league, you lose those players earlier than you would the men's uh, players. So I think I think that's going to be 
the biggest thing. I think initially the like you said the the one women's league a uh, one women's team in the North American uh, women's soccer league that would probably be uh, the first step. And I think the granting them permission to do something like that will be like be, is be the caveat that you when the women's league opens in Canada you come yep. back essentially. Yeah. And 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 it, it and that's where you have to do it, and they'll have to position those teams in where it's easy to travel, uh, because you can't have, because um, the one thing that was always like slowing, uh, crippling the teams in before was the travel. Like you can't ha- like it's tough for a team that's not get that much. You, but the one benefit for the being in the women's North America, they have TV deals now, so you can get some money off that. And then you before they were relying on the ticket gate all the time, and they might not have to rely that much on there. Uh, they have that TV deal yeah. in the U.S. And hopefully that the fact that ESPN has a deal with the women's soccer league there, that the team that's in Canada, they can get a t- deal with either TSN or One Soccer or something like that and show it on there. So the one thing about um, that would be nice in the long term is if if the CPL can have a a, a women's league. Is is the idea of do, doing double headers? I mean, yeah. that was that was. I mean, for all the tragedy and you know horrific things that happened, you know, at, at one point or another with the Whitecaps women's team, um, it was nice to be able to yeah. just go to a double header. Did that that really well? And then watch the men's team, and um, you got people out who wouldn't normally maybe go to the women's game, being like, "Yeah, I'm going to go to the double header and and watch both." Um, and yeah, I just think that in long term, if that, that can be a model or that can be something that could help, I think that would be uh, quite nice. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's all about investment and it's been hard enough to find people to put their hands in the pocket for the men's game over the years. And it's been even harder to find people to do it in, in the women's side. And as Emma said there, the, like she saw it her and Bev saw it in England. The growth of the game there came with investment. It came with existing clubs deciding, you know what makes us a proper club? To have a women's club as well. And so many of the the league teams in England and Scotland now as well have got like women's sides. Wimbledon's got a really strong women's programme. And a number of them don't play at the same stadium. So, for example, Chelsea's women used to play at Wimbledon's old ground, and then they actually bought that off Wimbledon when Wimbledon moved back to Plough Lane, and now it's Chelsea women's ground. AFC Wimbledon's women actually had played at Sutton United's ground, and now they're at Plough Lane and stuff as well. But, like, West Ham, they worked really hard at building up their women's program there was tv show about it and that got publicity for for them and it got fans in but it also showed the reality of how hard it is to make money as well because they were fighting for publicity they were fighting to get fans in and even the teams in england that have been doing well they struggled to draw more than a few thousand and they're very well marketed so if there was to be an NWSL team here in Canada, let's just initially just say there was just one team. Where do you think it should be? And should it be tied to an existing club, MLS, CPL, whatever, or should it be a brand new entity? Uh, being tied in would probably be the 
best way to do it. I know uh, having its own identity would be ideal in the fact that they they stand on their own. Uh, but they also, in this kind of way, they kind of do need support. I personally would not. I I, I you'd want to see. I don't know what the layout is in the women NWSL. Or or not? I don't know what the layout is. Where uh, like east where, and west and stuff. Yeah, east and west. Yeah, it or feels there's like a that. lot of eastern teams. Yeah, so if that's the case, then I would say put it in the east right now. The first team, uh, just because the travel benefit. If you don't have to travel. I, I actually that would Toronto. I, I I hate to say this, but Toronto would be my choice for that exact reason as well. Well, Toronto Toronto is another choice because you're. I mean. If there, if it's going to be NWSL again with the stipulation as we talked about before that they have to be in the Canadian league when it forms, um, yeah, I think Toronto and connected to Toronto FC and MLSE makes sense because, um, as far as I understand, they don't have any shortage of funds. Yeah, as demonstrated um, recently. Yeah, so I think I think that, like they have it, and again, whatever you think about Toronto, you know, in the general Canadian psyche and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's helpful when you have uh, a team in like the largest, most, you know, metropolis, most metro, sorry, metropolitan, um, you know, city in your country. I think that's not a bad first step. You know what I mean? And yeah. obviously, and obviously we would say the same for Montreal and, Vancouver, I would say that, but I don't think it'd be. I don't think it can now, be connected to the Whitecaps in any way. Shape. Now, no. if if they want to keep the women's league as a uh, you know a CPL kind of thing, the other option would be Forge, uh, because Forge is located near Toronto, um, it, 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 and so you're in, in that same metropolitan area, and it basically keeps it in the CPL family. And that way, well, you don't you you kind of. I know it's not as much money as TFC might be able to put into it, but there's still enough money in there. Uh, yeah, well, to I can't. Support. I, I can't remember if we talked about this or we were just messaging about it. But um, Scott Mitchell and Bob Young have done this new thing where they have a new partner, right? Like yes. they have their own little MLSC type. Yeah, thing, it's, right? it's interesting. They've definitely got like big plans and. T- getting sidetracked here but obviously signing two Pacific players this week as well obviously some money enticing them to there you would imagine we're going to talk about that later right yeah yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely as well as David Clanahan resigning yes. as CPL commissioner but I'll, I'll, we'll you, focus on, on Woso for now when do you take over uh, CPL Michael oh shush we're keeping that quiet oh okay yeah oh the, the plans I have oh if there was two teams in Canada I'd say Toronto and Vancouver as the locations for them. If it was only one, I, I'm erring on Toronto just because there's a lot of close-by teams as well for travel and getting rivalry and excitement and, and stuff like that as well. Vancouver, though, so many of the women in the national team programme have made their home here, have come through here, and it would be great to have the team here. I'd love to see the team here. I, I know it would not be easy to tie it to the Whitecaps right now because of everything that has happened and it can't, historic it can't allegations. Be. and It can't be. I, I know, that's the, that's the thing. That's the big thing. And then it's like, who else would take that on? And the thing is, how interested are they in doing something like that? They well, they were they, a couple of years ago and then yeah. I think financially it just was not 
it was not worthwhile. And <laughs> for for all we go on about the owners and everything at the Whitecaps, their pockets are not as deep as MLSE. Yeah. And you have to do this right. Yeah. You can't just half-ass the very first Canadian NWSL team. It has to be done properly. It has to have investment. That's why I think Toronto would be the best way to go forward with this. But let's hear a little bit, some thoughts from Canadian women's national team head coach, Beth Priestman, on this very subject. Uh, the gold medal performance seems to have really struck a chord with the Canadians and and really given platform for your team and uh, women's soccer. What do you hope that uh, can be done using that platform? Yeah, I think, you know, we spoke about all the way through changing the colour of the medal and then I was really clear with the group that I didn't want that US game for as special as it was to be our final. And so I dug really deep into what that, final match would mean and we spoke about you know writing the next chapter of the women's game here in Canada and how this group going getting gold can do that and I think what it means is and probably what's jumped out to me is I just feel the love for this team um, and I think that jumps out to me what this country can do now to support our pathway and um, to put this group of players and more on, on Canadian soil regularly, rather than maybe once every every four years. It just feels like the time is right to, to go and, you know, to go and um, get an Edinburgh cell franchise so that the very best can be playing week in, week out at home. And then, you know, the whole professional league, what that, that can do for coaches, referees, much more than just even players. So I just think now's the time where this spotlight's on this group to you know, I think investors will come forward and, and we'll see the landscape of this this country hopefully change forever. And that's what the motivation was for this particular group. It was like, listen, we do this. We, we write a new chapter, a new book on, on what this means for, for women's soccer in this country. You've been involved with the programme here for so many years now. You, you've seen the excitement that the women's team generates when the Olympics is on, when the World Cup is on. But it does feel that it's like every two years there's this buzz about the game and then it dies down a little bit. What do you feel needs to happen, not just in getting a team, but in terms of like media coverage, to keep the women's game in the spotlight and to make sure it's not just at the big tournaments that people start to care about the team? Yeah, I think, you know what, like going and getting a gold medal is, was one of the things. I think, you know, to really say we are Olympic champions, I think, when you're an Olympic champion team, there's not many teams that have done that, right? Have got on that podium and done that um, and done it three times now, obviously, top of the podium. So that's one. I think it cements us in the world game as a as a real women's football nation who, you know, people will fear, which I think has happened over the last eight to ten years. But now we have that gold medal. I think, again, I keep coming back to it, but I think seeing our players regularly on TV is critical. You know, I, I watch um, week in, week out, all the leagues around the world, our players doing outstanding things globally that probably they're not recognised enough for. Um, so seeing that in, in the media, covering NWSL, covering leagues around the world, and then having our league or our team in Canada covered week in, week out is only going to make these heroes more heroes week in, week out, where young players, young girls, young boys 
can just tune in and watch their idols perform week in, week out. So I think it is it is that regular, that consistency that that is critical to to make kids dream. Like, you know, I grew up in England where the men's Premier League's on week in, week out, and you idolise, you know, who you want to be when you grow up. And I think seeing that regularly is critical. And I think that's the next step. And I have a great feeling that that's, that is going to be the change that, that we all want to see. And I know Candace Sutter's committed, um, investors, it, it will happen. It's now about us all getting on board and making it happen. So some thoughts there from Bev Priestman. Now, one of the things that, that Emma had said in our, our chat there was she feels there's a need to see our players week in and week out on TV, that the legacy of this gold medal has to be professional clubs and then ideally a, a league as well. And it is a case of like seeing them on TV because young girls coming through in their their formative years, their early teens, mid-teens, late-teens, college players, they want to see, oh, this is what I could do. I'm seeing these women on TV every week. And the zone, to their credit, are showing a lot of women's football now, and you don't even have to be a DAZN subscriber to watch it. They're making a lot of the the women's European tournaments free for the, for people to watch on their your YouTube channels. There's the, the English league that's getting shown regularly on Sportsnet and the national team games on One Soccer. We, we need to have a big discussion in this country about the future of football media and the accessibility to it. It's not the time for that to do that just now, but I mean, it's right. Young women, young girls need role models in this game. And if they're not seeing them on TV then I don't know what, and the NWSL, you just can't watch it here without going to extreme lengths or subscribing, I think, to CBS you have to do, and even then, I'm not even sure how well that works. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is you get, uh, there's been a, an, already an effect in having like three MLS teams, whether there's top Canadians on there or not, already in the ranks of the men's soccer, and then um, the one, obviously the gold the, the women's uh, have been, obviously, the national team has been inspirational to a lot of players as well. Yeah. Uh, and then, as well, on, on the men's side, the Alf- we, we have yet to see what the Alfonso Davies effect has had. Um, it's very similar. Um, uh, I know crossing sports and, 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 and sex is, is, is basically the Vince Carter effect on, on Toronto's basketball. Uh, when he played back there, um, that had a massive effect in uh, in the number of players that have come out of Toronto area because of that one player has been huge. So these kind of things, you're 100% right. When you see somebody on your local team um, or or a national team or something like that uh, playing at, at a top level, uh, it makes a massive effect in the recruitment of, that, of young players to that sport. And I think if we're realistically looking at how the game is going to develop here, it is starting off with a, an NWSL team and then some semi-professional leagues. I'd love the WPSL thing to work out. I'm just a little bit sceptical on that as to... I think they're trying to make it out to be the answer to what we're looking for, and it's very far off that. And League One BC is going to be very exciting. And as I said, there's so much great talent in the colleges and academies here. 
But they have they have to see it on on TV, Zach. They have to have these role models. They have to have investment, and it's no use just seeing the women's team on TV at the Olympics and the World Cup every two years. The excitement's always high, and then it just tails back off again. No, it's not, and that's the, the another thing to me for me that points to TFC and MLSC being a, a good thing is, or sorry, a potential good thing for an NWSL team in, in Canada is. If they did it right and they really invested in it, they could, they could like dominate NWSL. Mm-hmm. And what 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 would grow grow things and build things and create more excitement than them? You know, putting it like a dominant team in that league and win, like and winning. You know what I mean? Like imagine the kind of groundswell that would add to for a you know a, a, our own league and, and or other teams in NWSL until we can you know you know fully go it alone ourselves i don't know but I, I... there's also like whenever this has been talked about about a canadian side there like a lot of the behind the scenes chatter appears to be concern from u.s soccer that canada suddenly stacks a team full of canadian national team players thus boosting canada in the process as well and taking away from america on the international level so there is a concern that you're basically going to have Team Canada as an NWSL team. Yeah. And they, they do sweep everyone out of the way. Yeah, well, but NWSL hasn't come out and said they don't want expansion to Canada. And they're no. not, to, me, to me, they're not in a solid enough place, right, where they could yeah, turn think, away anybody. Where they could, yeah, where they could yeah. say, no, we're not going to take you. But I also club. feel if they really, really wanted one, there would have been a team by now. They would have made that work. Maybe. But yeah, was, but the thing is with the TFC, like you're saying, the money that they have, they need to bring in at least two to three players that are, are not, uh, noteworthy. It doesn't yeah. have to be a Christine Sinclair because I don't see Christine Sinclair leaving Portland uh, ever to go to any another, another oh, team at no. this point. That's uh, but it, home. Yeah, but it, if you could bring a Janine Becky or um, uh, Jesse Fleming, I know they. I know one or two of them have just moved. Oh, I know Jesse Fleming just moved to Europe recently, or was who was it? Julia Grosso. Yeah, Grosso Julia moved Grosso. to Juventus. Well, I mean, like Bill Bill Manning's probably going to be checking transfer market to see when contracts are expiring and just coming up with a list of players. I'm sure. Yeah, so it's just a matter of of, of bringing those players over. I mean, if, if you have to pay a transfer fee, you have to pay a transfer fee as well, right? It's good to bring some Canadians over instead of yes. just Italians all the time. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll see Jordan who's in my back wearing TSS colours. Well, we can live in hope. But that is pretty much it for our chat about the women's game here in Canada. Hope you've enjoyed it. I know we don't cover this a, a lot on the show. We would love to cover women's soccer uh, a lot more. Canada soccer do not make it easy to get access to the, the top female players and get decent chats and interviews with them. So hopefully that is something that can change as well, not just for us, but for all outlets, because that's how you grow the game, having better media coverage. And then we'll certainly be doing a lot of coverage, both on the podcast and on the site for League One BC from the men and the women's side as well. So let yeah. us know what you'd like to see us cover. Yeah, and from what I've heard of in the past from other people, now I'm not myself because I unfortunately don't have the time to cover anymore. But it's not easy to cover the men's team either. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, Canada soccer don't make it easy sometimes, just in general. But we've still got time to bring you this episode's wavelength, and because this has been primarily a show about women's soccer, I was trying to find a football song about the women's game. 
And it was not easy, because there does not appear to be too many of them. So, I had said last week that for this month, we're playing songs about national teams, either sung by the national teams themselves, or by bands about the, the national teams. And I said it wasn't going to be all about Scotland. But for the second week in a row, I've gone with a song about the Scottish national team. This is about the the Scotland women's national team that made the World Cup finals for the first time in 2019. It's a song by Neil Grant, who we interviewed back on the show, back in episode 456, I believe it was. This is his song for that 2019 World Cup run. This is called Give It All We've Got. singer-songwriter Neil Grant there with a song for Scotland's 2019 Women's World Cup team that was Give It All We've Got. But that is it for this episode of the show. We hope you've enjoyed the Whitecaps chat. We hope you've enjoyed the Women's Soccer chat. Just before we go though guys, let everyone know where they can find you online. Any final thoughts or just anything that you've learned this week, Steve? Um, uh, 
um, when you want to uh, maintain stuff, it's always better to use uh, briefs than boxers. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WhitecapSpeed. Are you a boxers or a brief guy, Zach? Or commando? Uh, my, my preference actually is the boxer brief. Yes, mine too. Um, Everyone yeah. can picture us now in our boxer briefs. Um, you, you can find me on Twitter at Zachary AM and uh, send us pictures of you in your boxer briefs. The thing I learned, uh, not learned, I guess the thing, my reflection for this episode is I just want to give a shout out to Michael's good friend, um, Snakebite Peter Wright on his world championship victory in the darts. Uh, I watched the darts for the first time ever. Yes, I know. I was very excited. We were messaging back and forward. What, yes. what did you think of it? It was good. I actually, I was, um, I was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours and they're like, I was like, oh, what are you doing now? And they're like, oh, I'm going to watch the darts. And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I was like, and I had, I don't know. I had nothing to do. Or it was like one of those days I was on holidays. I was like, oh, I'll put on the darts and see what all this fuss is about. Mike, I heard Michael talk about it. So I put it on and I, te- I text you. And then it was like, I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> Far more entertaining than I thought it would be. It's fantastic. I've got my dartboard set up here. Once Omicron's all gone, let's get an AFT and darts night going. We'll video it. We'll do our games night. We'll get all our videos done as well. It's a mobile I, board. It's on a thing so I can take it to somewhere more central. Last time I played darts was uh, after a game in Lankford. We were on our way home. We stopped at a, to eat at a pub and there was darts and it was fun. But yeah, I, I'd be up for that. I, I bought this dart stand when I was last over in the UK two years ago because my plan was, and I think I've spoken about this before in the show, to take it to Whitecaps training and do some darts challenges with the Whitecaps players and film it. And then a month later, COVID came and I've never been able to, to do that because who wants to handle other people's darts during a pandemic? <laughs> Anyway, we'll get round to that at some point. We'll also get round to our football board games that we're going to be doing on a special channel as well. That was something else I brought back from the UK on that trip and have never been able to use. <laughs> one day, one day. But that is it for this episode. I'm Michael McCall. Give me a follow on Twitter at AFT in Canada. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash AFT in Canada, just in case we ever do get these videos up. And we've, we've been having some chats about some other fun videos that, that we might like to do. I guess I, I've learned from all this darts chat that Zach is a big fan of three in a bed now. So that is a good thing. We'll get him kissing the lipstick and everything by the, by the end of this year. But that is it for now. We will be back soon with another show. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Mon the Whitecaps. And mon women's soccer. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.